Life Center, let me invite you uh, to take your Bibles and turn to the eighth chapter as we continue our series on the I Am statements of Jesus. These are declarations that Jesus made about himself, about his purpose, about his nature, about his mission, his identity. Moving forward on the assumption that what Jesus has to say about himself is more important than what we have to say about him. This morning we come to the second of those seven I am statements and we read in the eighth chapter of John's gospel beginning in verse 12 these words. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be unto God. Well, Tom Terrence came of age during the tumultuous years of the 1960s when then Alabama Governor George Wallace defiantly announced that he would never allow racial integration in his state, Terrence believed he'd finally found an ally, somebody who was willing to join him in standing up for what he believed was a proud way of life. That conviction set the young Terrence on a downward spiral of hate and paranoia. He began associating with white supremacist groups and reading anti-Semitic literature. It wasn't long until he became involved with the Mississippi chapter of the Ku Klux Klan, which according to his recollection was the most violent right-wing group in the country at the time. So it was that he found himself one sweltering summer night in the late 1960s attempting to plant a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi. But he and his accomplice did not realize they were actually walking right into a police ambush. 
The showdown, which led to a gun battle, killed his partner and left him gravely wounded. The doctors said they would be surprised if he lived four hours. But he did live, and he went on to stand trial, where he received a 30-year sentence at the Mississippi State Penitentiary, which, according to his recollection, was one of the worst prisons in America at the time. Six months after arriving in jail, Tom Terrence managed to escape from prison along with two other inmates. He says he had every intention of returning to his racially violent behavior. But within two days, he and his accomplices were apprehended following a furious gun battle that resulted in the death of one of the other inmates. That act resulted in another five years being tacked on to his 30-year sentence. But just as importantly, it landed him in solitary confinement. With the exception of two showers a week, he spent every moment of every day completely alone in his six-by-nine-foot cell. In order to keep from going crazy, Terence says he began to read. At first, he immersed himself more deeply into the racial propaganda that had brought him to this point. But slowly, he says, he began to desire something else, something deeper. He turned first to philosophy. But then, eventually, with nowhere else to go, he ended up in the New Testament. He was riveted by what he read there, especially in the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Over time, as he engaged more and more with the story of Jesus, a growing awareness of his sin began to emerge within him. And one night in his cell, all alone, he dropped to his knees. And with tears of repentance streaming down his cheeks, he prayed a simple prayer of confession. He asked Jesus to forgive him and to come and take over his life. Well, Jesus did exactly what Tom Terrence asked him to do. After eight years in prison, through a very unlikely turn of events, he was granted parole and was given a grant to attend college. Terrence would go on to earn his undergraduate degree, and then from there would go on to earn both a Master's of Divinity and a Doctor of Ministry degree. And in a twist of divine irony, he would go on to eventually co-pastor a multiracial church where he would spend his days shepherding the very kinds of people that he once sought to destroy. Today, Terence is the president emeritus of the C.S. Lewis Institute and the recent author of a best-selling book that tells the story of his dramatic conversion. Terence is one of countless stories of people whose lives get turned around because of an encounter with Jesus Christ, some of whom are familiar to us. I think, for example, of Charles Colson, 
who served seven months in prison for his role in the Watergate scandal, but would eventually go on to found Prison Fellowship, one of the most dynamic prison ministries in the country. I think of C.S. Lewis, once an outspoken and angry atheist who went on to become one of the most powerful Christian apologists of the modern era. I think of John Newton, who was once a slave trader, but who became so disgusted with his life and with his vocation that he turned from that vocation and became a minister and went on to write the words of Amazing Grace, one of the most familiar hymns in the world. I think of similar stories in Scripture. There is Saul on his way down to Damascus to arrest the Christians there when Jesus gets a hold of him and turns him around so that in time he eventually becomes the most important Christian missionary in history. There is corrupt Zacchaeus who's been stealing from his own countrymen but who gets invited to lunch with Jesus one day and turns around to become a model of generosity. Or there's the story that occurs just immediately prior to where our reading for today began in John chapter 8, where we read about a woman caught in the very act of adultery whom Jesus pardons and then sets free so that she might go and sin no more. We love stories like these because they inspire us. They encourage us to believe that there is still hope for all the confused and broken people in the world. As Tom Terrence would go on to say of his own experience, there is no pit so deep that the love of God cannot reach there. No one is ever so far gone that Jesus will completely give up on him or her. Think of the story of the prodigal son in which the young man runs off and squanders everything. And yet in spite of his misdeeds, discovers the father ready to receive him back into his mercies. If Jesus won't give up on people, Well, then neither should his church. That is at least part of what Jesus means when he says that he is the light of the world. He is the one who has come to shed the light of truth on the darkness and the chaos that seems to define our world. In the opening chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 1, it says this of Jesus. It said, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world. But before we get all warm and fuzzy about that, We need to understand something that is central to the gospel message. 
and it is this. The darkness Jesus came to dispel with his light isn't just out there in the world beyond us. It is also in here, in this church, in you, and in me. You see, the really hard thing about light is that it does not discriminate. It shines its brightness everywhere, illuminating both what we want to see and what we would prefer not to see. That's why this second I am statement from Jesus comes in the midst of a bitter controversy, one that rages on throughout the gospel story. The words we have read this morning in John 8 are part of an ongoing argument that Jesus had with a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees. And without getting too technical about it, the Pharisees, you could say, were the religious zealots of their day. They were absolutely committed to keeping the rules and the rituals that the Jewish people were given in the Old Testament. If we were to move their story forward into modern times, we might say they were church people on steroids. These were the folks that avoided the things they weren't supposed to do and who made a full-hearted effort to do the things they were supposed to do. Now, I don't know this for a fact, but I have this image of them as being rather rigid and stuffy, the kind of people you probably wouldn't want to go out to dinner with on a Friday night. But these are the folks that you could absolutely trust to handle the church's finances or to monitor the county elections because with them on the store, everything would be done exactly according to the book. Everything would be kept exactly as it was supposed to be. These were the good guys. At least that's what they thought. And yet, in this passage and in so many others exactly like it, Jesus was challenging them. We might even go so far as to say confronting them with a truth that they didn't want to hear. Jesus was actually suggesting to them that in spite of what they thought of themselves, they were actually confused, misguided, wrong, blind to the truth. In spite of how they saw themselves, Jesus saw them differently, and it wasn't pretty. The clearest evidence of their blindness, Jesus said, was in their refusal to believe in him. Jesus, he said, had come from the Father to bring the kingdom of God. He was the long-awaited Messiah upon whom even the Pharisees admitted they were waiting and yet, because Jesus didn't fit the description that they had already worked out in their own minds of what the Messiah would look like, they wholeheartedly rejected him. Now, with the signs that he had performed, with the teachings that he had given, Jesus had offered these folks plenty of convicting evidence that he really was who he said he was. Yet they refused to accept it. And the reason was simple. 
they were blinded by their own convictions of self-righteousness. They believed in their religious goodness and in their own moral uprightness. And as far as they were concerned, no country bumpkin from the backwater regions of Galilee where Jesus had spent his life was going to march in and tell them differently. Who did he think he was? They were the religious experts. They knew best. Well, it was enough to make Jesus furious. Read through the Gospels and you will see that Jesus reserved his harshest judgments for the Pharisees and for the other religious leaders of the day. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you here. Jesus despised sin wherever he found it. When the woman caught in adultery in the previous story was drugged before Jesus, he did not ignore the reality of her sin as though adultery were no big deal. He didn't excuse it. But neither did he condemn her. He told her to go and sin no more, to turn from that way of life. But he did so with a spirit of exceeding patience and compassion. But when Jesus spoke with the religious leaders of his day, he made no effort to hide his anger and his frustration. On various occasions, he called them hypocrites. On one occasion, he called them a brood of vipers. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure it ain't good. Because for all of their claims of righteousness, they were missing the truth was right in front of them. That truth points us to a painful paradox that the gospel still forces us to embrace even today, and it is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is both good news and it is bad news. The good news is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to set at release those who are in bondage to their own darkness. But before that news can be good news, we must first come to grips with the bad news. And the bad news is, we are the sinners Jesus came to save. Even we who like to think of ourselves as good and noble and upright, even us good church folk who come out for worship on a gray, cool October morning, even we are the sinners in need of salvation. Because you see, the bad news is there isn't enough goodness in any of us to meet the demands for God's true and pure holiness. There is something so fundamentally broken in us that even when we think we are doing good, even then we are missing the mark. Jesus illustrates this on numerous occasions, but perhaps nowhere more powerfully than in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're not familiar with it, the Sermon on the Mount is the most concentrated collection of teachings 
that we have straight from the lips of Jesus anywhere in the New Testament. We find it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7, in which Jesus teaches and preaches to a crowd gathered on a hillside one day, offering up a series of subjects and topics, all having to do with what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And in one section of that sermon, Jesus goes back and quotes portions of the Old Testament law that his audience would already know. And he would point out to them that even when folks believed they were keeping the law, they were still coming up short. He says, for example, that that even though you may have restrained yourself from committing murder, which the letter of the law clearly prohibited, he said you're still guilty of breaking the spirit of the law if you even harbor anger towards someone. Why? Because anger is the dark impulse in us that ultimately leads to murder. You may not carry it to that outward expression, but you're on the same continuum. It is the same darkness that dwells in you. Likewise, he says, even if you restrain yourself from committing adultery, which the letter of the law clearly prohibited, you are still guilty of breaking the spirit of the law, even if you simply lust after someone other than your spouse. Why? Because that dark impulse places you on the same continuum that ultimately leads to that outward expression of sin. Those are just two examples among many that illustrate the dark impulses that live inside of us. So much so that even when we convince ourselves that we're keeping the letter of the law inside, there's still something in us broken and chaotic that is rebelling against what God desires. Now, at the risk of sounding coy, if there are any among us here today who can honestly say we've never harbored anger or never wrestled with lust, and congratulations, you are the first exceptions to Jesus' words in history. But for all the rest of us who belong to the truly human family, well, then it seems that we've got some pretty uncomfortable truth to confront about ourselves. That's why I say that the gospel, which is exceedingly good news, begins with the bad news. And the bad news is that we aren't truly the good people we think we are. We carry around in us the same fault that the Pharisees carried. They trusted in their own goodness, so much so that they weren't willing to receive the free gift of grace Jesus was holding out to them. I began by telling you the story of Tom Terrence a moment ago and how he dropped to his knees in that prison cell and confessed his sins to Jesus. Would you be surprised to hear that prior to that moment, Terrence already considered himself to be a Christian? As a child, he made a profession of faith and got baptized attended worship and Sunday school almost every week until his teenage years. Now, we can always wonder how his story might have been different if he had stayed connected to the church even in those tumultuous teenage years. Could that have potentially kept him off the path of hatred he wandered down? We will never know. But what we can know is that even while he was planting bombs, Terence already believed he was a Christian. 
He already believed in his rightness and his goodness. He was convinced of the truth of his actions. He was already convicted that he was going to heaven when he died. He was as sure of it as he could be. What he can now say, looking back on those early years of his life, was that all he had done was offer some mental assent to a set of abstract ideas about Jesus. He had never truly repented. He had never confronted the brokenness within him. But now, confined to that tiny cell with the light of Jesus shining through the scriptures that he was reading, he had nowhere to hide. And he was forced to confront something about himself that he had always managed to ignore. The good news is that once he did, the same light of Jesus Christ that forced him to see his own darkness, that same light began to draw him out of that darkness and lead him into a new way of life. And in the 40 years since that light dawned on him, he says he has had a greater sense of purpose and hope than he ever knew was possible. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Now I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and suggest that there are at least two kinds of people among us here this morning. Most of us will belong to one group or the other. In fact, I dare say pretty much all of us will belong to one group or the other. On the one hand, there are those among us today who are broken and confused and hurting, and who are deeply aware of their brokenness and their pain. And if that's you, you already know who you are. Something about your life today is painfully out of balance. Something about your life is a mess. A relationship somewhere is a wreck. Your addiction is raging out of control. Your emotions are dragging you into a dark place. Your financial house is so out of order you can't imagine things ever being right again. Or perhaps the consequences of some past action has finally caught up with you and you are living with shame and regret. Whatever the case, something about you is broken and you know it. If that's you, I have some extremely good news for you this morning. You are exactly the kind of person Jesus came to save. He is here today offering you His grace and His mercy. He comes to tell you that with His light illuminating the way, your path into the future does not have to be determined by the past. His grace is yours for the taking. On the other hand, there are those among us here this morning who were broken and confused and hurting and who don't know it. If that is you, then perhaps you today are convinced of your own rightness and your own goodness. You're pretty sure you've got everything nailed down and all your bases covered 
You're confident that all your opinions are valid and all your beliefs are true. And if there is something about your life that's slightly off balance, it's probably not a big deal and it's probably somebody else's fault anyway. And if that's you, well, I've got some really good news for you too. You are exactly the kind of person Jesus came to save. Because you see, Jesus comes to save us not just from our badness, but also from our goodness. He comes to save us from our pride, and from our self-assurance. He comes to save us from our insistence that life has to be exactly what we think it has to be. He comes to save us from ourselves. Here's the really good news this morning. No matter which group we think we belong to, we've all got the same problem. And we've all got the same access to the same solution. The problem is this. We are sinful people whose lives are clouded by dark impulses. We have missed the mark of God's holiness. We have sinned against Him and against our neighbor, both by what we have done and by what we have left undone. That is the problem, and it touches every one of us. But the solution is astoundingly simple. When the light of Jesus Christ reveals our darkness to us, all we are called to do is repent of our sin, to confess Him as Lord, and to trust His goodness to make right all that is wrong with us. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Not even the darkness that lives in you and me. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Let's pray together. Gracious and holy God, Shine your light on us this morning that we might see the truth of who we are. Show us in the light of your grace what our great need is for you. Save us from our own self-rightness. Save us from our belief that we can go it alone. Save us from our hidden convictions that we don't need anybody but ourselves. Convict us of our sin and draw us back to you that we might move forward into a future that does not have to be defined by the dark past. We thank you for the light that is ours because of you. And we make this prayer in the name of and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When Jesus shines his light on you, on me, what do we see? What's there that needs to be tended to?
If what you can see this morning is that you've never truly confessed Him as Lord, then the first step is to simply make that confession, to acknowledge your need of Him as Lord and Savior. And if that's where you are, I would just make a simple request. Would you come forward as we sing in a moment ago? We're not going to seek to draw you out and embarrass you, but we want to celebrate with you as you make that acknowledgement and take that step. But all of us have something that we need to see about ourselves Something that the light of Jesus reveals to us about ourselves. Some sin we need to turn from. Some habit we need to reset. Some relationship that we need to restore. Some act that needs to be turned from. Or some obedience that needs to be pursued. If there's anything about any of that that you need to share with a brother in Christ, I'll be here. But, but my prayer is that whether it happens here or in the privacy of your own seat, that we won't leave today until we've allowed Jesus to illuminate our lives with his light. That he might lead us into his truth. My prayer is that we will be open. Let's stand and worship him together.